In a little bit of a departure, I want to talk about my guide boat. Anyone who follows the podcast through Instagram or is friends with me on Instagram in general will have noticed that I post a lot of pictures of my Adirondack guide boat. I originally built the boat in 1995 and I'm restoring it. And I've mentioned it in previous podcasts, but I thought I might want to talk about the history of my boat and my rebuilding project because a lot of you have asked about it. The boat was originally built in 1995, as I said, and I'm doing a significant rebuild of it. First of all, for starters, it's not a canoe. I understand that it looks like one, so I'm here to clear this up. It's a double-ended pulling boat, which means that it's rowed facing backwards. It swings a set of eight-foot oars. And because it's only three feet wide and you can't get a quite a proper fulcrum for those oars, it's rowed with hands crossed, so your hands actually overlap and cross in the middle. It takes you a minute to get used to it because often in rowing we're taught to bring the oars um, together in our fists side by side. Look at that Winslow Homer painting fog warning that I always talk about, and the guy's hands are right together on the oars, and your oars cross, so you have to adjust to that and steer for it. I say the boat is not a canoe, and it's not, but the distinction is not easy to grasp, I don't think. Um, they're a very canoe-shaped, at least along the shear line um, and along the top, though their underwater sections are different. Um, Winslow Homer, in some of his great paintings of the Adirondacks, depicts what are clearly guideboats with their wine glass sections like a yacht and their hollowed out um, bows with the pronounced stem, the deck circles, um, and they're being paddled. His most famous of them is probably the blue boat that shows a blue guideboat being paddled into an inlet. Of course, the guideboats were occasionally paddled. There's an advantage to facing forward when you're sneaking up on prey or trying to enter a narrow inlet. Um, but he shows few pictures of guideboats actually being rowed. He knew a lot about boats, and he probably understood the difference and probably um, just thought that um, paddling the boat like a canoe maybe translated better to the aesthetic he was going for. Emerson calls the guideboats boats in his Palm Adirondack. Um, and his, his Wikipedia um, entry mentions that he went to the Adirondacks in canoe guideboats. So there were Adirondack guideboats that were paddled, but the type is so unique that it's easy for people to fail to understand how they're different than canoes or how they function in a different way than canoes because really they're a pretty unique type of boat overall. The origin of the boat, I think, is a, a fairly interesting story. It at least is a very significant story to me, and I hope it's interesting to you. I was uh, recently graduated from college, and I was taking a year off, I guess. So I'm not sure what I was doing. I was working in a paint store in the warehouse. These large semi-trucks would come in with about 50,000 pounds of paint twice a week and I would unload the entire truck and put away the entire shipment by myself in a day which also included putting the bales onto the one gallon paint cans which we referred to as wickets reminding us of our of our glory days in croquet or something
anyway, around the same time, I was studying a lot of American literature. I was reading on my own. I was reading James Fenmore Cooper novels. And I was starting to research the historical context of The Last of the Mohicans that came out in 1826. Started to learn about Clinton's folly, Dwight Clinton's uh, Erie Canal project, and the way that the Hudson River Valley started opening up to commerce and eventually tourism, and the way the Adirondacks were becoming one of America's first tourist destinations. Wealthy families started to build camps for their private use, and those eventually turned into lodges and tourist spots. In Cooper or in Emerson's poem about the Adirondacks, the boats weren't very clearly um, defined, but I was starting to sense that they were not like any other boat, really. Right around this time, an article came out in Wooden Boat Magazine that was fascinating to me because it was about the Adirondack guide boats, and it showed on the cover, a picture I'll never forget, there was a bearded guy and he had a checked black and red flannel shirt on. He was rowing on one of these eastern ponds that had the trees and brushes growing right up to the bank in a kind of impenetrable forest that doesn't look much like something we have out west. And I was fascinated by that image. I, I had a moment, a Whitmanian moment, where I thought that could be me. And I became really fascinated by those boats. At the same time as I was doing, uh, you know, some carpentry work, both at work and on side jobs, I was starting to get interested in fine woodworking. And the idea of building a boat started to sort of take hold of me. I'd built a, a little rowboat before this, and, and the idea of building, building a, a fine boat started to sort of take hold of me in an interesting way. And in the Wooden Boat magazine article, there were a couple of important references um, listed. The one that really was significant, and I have it here in my hand right now, was Kenneth and Helen Durant's book, The Adirondack Guideboat. And it included line drawings for the boat that was considered to be the apogee of the design, the 1905 H.D. Grant designed and built boat, Virginia. It was very late in the history of Adirondack guideboats, and at that point they weren't being built for, um, you know, guides to take their sports out anymore. They were being built for people who owned camps and wanted a traditional boat. I realized that I couldn't build a traditional boat. I wouldn't have access to the types of materials, and it also wouldn't be very well suited to a boat that lived a hard life in a hot climate. Fortunately, to quote Benjamin Franklin, at that time, I happened to meet with a book um, called Canoecraft by Ted Moores, and he designed a system in the 70s of building cedar strip and epoxy boats, and that seemed like a way that I could build the hull um, that would be durable uh, and and uh, easy to maintain and tough, and it has proved to be. In fact, the the hull of the boat was in pretty good shape when I started the rebuild. And then I traditionally finished it with decks, gunnels, frames, all of hard wood that were um, closer to the original. The frames were laminated, but the rest of the exterior parts of the boat were pretty much um, uh, as designed um, with the original boat. 
as I started to think about the boat and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to build it, I started to try to squirrel away a little bit of money. I was really poor at the time. I mean, I was in a, I mean, you know, I had a house to live in. I was doing all right. But I was at that point in life where a $100 bill or an unexpected banking mistake would have me skipping meals. So I started to squirrel away a few dollars, but I also, through a happy accident, had a little side job I had. I was able to get some I-beam floor joists and some chunks of particle board that I was able to use to set up the strong back, um, the frame that I built the boat on. So quite by chance, I had the materials for the form before I had any money for the other materials. So without any money or without any plan, I just started forward in good faith that I could get the boat done, and I eventually completed the haul, which took a matter of months. It was a slow process, and covering it with epoxy was another slow process. I was um, able to turn the boat over um, with fiberglass on one side and start working on the inside in a cradle. Looking back on the project overall, there was less swearing, frustration, and breaking of things than there is in a normal project for me. I think, one, the at first, the limited amount of time I had to work on the boat, offset by the amount of study I was doing into it, made me approach it in a way that was sort of thoughtful and prepared that <laughs> I could probably learn a few lessons from now. Also, the materials were so dear to me that if I broke a piece or screwed something up, I tried to steam bend the deck circle and I snapped it from not steaming it long enough, then it would be a while before I could probably come by new materials. And so I approached it with a great deal of care. The one thing I did, though, that was interesting is I, I built the boat, or at least the hull of the boat, inside of a sort of a basement. It was a, it was a raised foundation house that belonged to a friend of mine. He was out of town. I wanted to start the boat away from the prying eyes of the naysayers. It was also convenient because in that space it had a dirt floor so I didn't have to worry about keeping the floor clean and I could also plant my strong back, my jig, right in the earth um, to, to uh, stabilize it rather than finding some way to fasten it down or, or weight it. The only problem was that this house was right next to another house that was, a, that was identical to it. And there's a very narrow space, about, I don't know, maybe six feet between the places. And I wasn't exactly certain that I was going to be able to get the boat out of that space after the hull was complete. You know, I built it like Johnny Cash got his Cadillac one piece at a time, but it had to come out whole, and I wasn't sure it was going to. I had a backup plan that involved a sawzall and a bottle jack but I didn't want it to have to come down to that <laughs> unless it really needed to. While I was doing it I was reminded of a story where my granddad built a boat one time in his living room. He and two of his buddies built identical boats and they shared the jig to build the boats over and by taking out the windows in the front of the house my granddad was able to get the jig into the living room where he could build the boat in front of the fire where it would be warm and he could um, get proper dry drying on his glue when he was off from 
you know, when he had the winter off from the road crew he was working on. Uh, the, the thing he didn't account for, though, was that the boat would be wider after <laughs> it was built over the outside of the jig due to the thickness of the planking. And apparently he had to dismantle a fair amount of the front of the house to get the boat out. And I was not looking for a repeat of that situation, though it was close. So when the boat came time to to come out, we had to go up a few steps to get up to grade coming out of this basement space of the house and it came up against the neighbor's house and we were able to shoot it up in the air and by virtue of just digging out a foot or two of the dirt in front of the first step in the doorway we were able to sweep the boat out carry it out put it in my buddy's van and with me hanging on to it and it sticking out of the back doors of the open van we were able to get it to my workshop and I could start finishing it there so my granddad said of his boat he didn't intend to build a boat in a bottle I think what he meant by that was that he was going to get that boat out of there one way or another and I felt exactly the same way rebuilding a part of a house was nothing compared to damaging a boat that would be a violation of everything you ever believed in. My experience building the boat really did teach me that if I could just focus on one task and learn what's necessary to complete that task and to enjoy and focus on the details, that the cumulative effect of paying attention to those details would shape something in the end that was worth having and that would be recognized for uh, hopefully its beauty and its value. And I also learned some important things about failure. You know, I say looking back that the project went together smoothly, but that's because the failures in that project are no more important than a trip to the store to get some sandpaper. They're a part of the process. They're a supply. Every success is built upon a mountain of failure. I know in this rebuild, I had a tree fall on the boat that broke the new gunnels. I had some stuff exposed to the weather that I had to redo. I stabbed a drill bit through my left ring finger. I've had all kinds of setbacks on it. I've had varnish bubble and get dirt in it. And all of those things are not the end of anything. They're merely a part of the process, a necessary part of the process. Sometimes you have to learn from them. Sometimes you have to survive them. Sometimes you have to just write it off and move on but it's really really important and that I think also is a life lesson that comes from struggling at some new thing and making it and I'm really really grateful that all of these things came together at the same time I started thinking about the difficult path toward becoming a teacher um, it really the process of working with my hands in that way really inculcated in me those values at an intellectual level. And I think that I've tied those two things together. And to me, doing, making, thinking, becoming have all been interrelated um, probably before that. But while I was building that boat, I kind of brought into focus that that was a part of my process, a necessary and essential part of my process of becoming. So even though I started with a goal more than a plan, the next step always seemed to present itself, and by the time I had finished the boat, I had already become a teacher, 
and had already started moving into that world. Maybe more importantly, these things all really did start coming together because the studies of the boat became the direction of my studies in school. For instance, my uh, knowledge of and interest in that region and Cooper led to my interest in the Hudson River School painters and learned to doing later after that graduate work in art history and sort of um, it was very the work on this boat was very blended together with the work that I was doing to become an academic and a scholar of sorts such such as I am when I saw that country in the Adirondacks for the first time, I saw it in this guideboat, and it really felt like a culmination of something important that I was working toward. It reminded me of a passage from Walden where Thoreau writes, by the way, I, I've rowed the boat on Walden Pond several times, uh, in addition to on the Concord and Merrimack River and a lot of the other places that Thoreau talked about and this was a even though that was in Massachusetts that's an important uh, connection and part of this story for me too but anyway in Walden Thoreau says I learned this at least by my experiment that if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours and and I think for me the lesson of this boat that hopefully is relevant to others in this podcast and the reason I've indulged myself in talking about my own history with woodworking and making things is that I learned through this boat that you can imagine a future for yourself and that there are steps toward that future and you can start gathering together the materials and you can start making that future happen if you visualize it. And it's a lesson that I need to be reminded of at times, I think. And during this pandemic and also at my age and I'm looking for what the next thing I'm going to do to sort of redefine the next stage in my life, I'm happy to return to building this boat and be reminded of the lesson that you just need to visualize the future and you can start moving toward it no matter where you are in that process or how many steps it's going to take you to get there. Thoreau also says in Walden, if you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now put foundations under them. And to me, the building the boat really signified that process. And I'm, again, really, I feel fortunate to be in a place to be revisiting that lesson. Anyone who knows me very well knows that it took me a while to grow up. I spent a lot of my life sitting around waiting for permission to do something from people who didn't have standing to give me permission anyway. So... I didn't get a blessing from my rabbi. I didn't get a note from my mama. I got my tools and my materials together. And I built that boat and I saw it through and I got it in the water. And if I hadn't, I'd be managing that warehouse right now. 